In this hour, though, a conversation with Robert P. Jones, president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, joins us to unpack his new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. I really want to interrogate uh, that subtitle, uh, The Path to a Shared American Future. I'm not so sure that that's possible, but we'll work, uh, we'll work our way through that in this hour. Uh, honored to have Robert P. Jones on this program. How are you today, sir? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to have you on the program. I'm glad we have an hour. Um, a lot to unpack here regarding uh, the the topic uh, and the text. Let me start with this. I, I, I want to start uh, philosophical, and I want to start uh, broad, and we'll mm-hmm. narrow our way through this hour. Give me your assessment of the state of white supremacy. How would you frame the white supremacy that we are up against right Mm. now in America. And we'll talk in a moment uh, about how you think we are having a conversation or the lack thereof about white supremacy in this present moment. We'll take them one at a time. Uh, The mic is yours, sir. Yeah, no, thanks for for hopping right right straight to it. Um, You know, so I was born in 1968. um, And, you know, I can certainly say that, you know, I, I think, uh, we're seeing it right out in front of us, um, you know, today, uh, open, you know, white supremacy, uh, no more dog whistles. It is right out in the open for everyone to see, you know, by my lights, it, it's a clear reaction uh, to a number of things. So one, uh, to demographic changes in the country, um, you know, this, this uh, make America great again, slogan, for example, that last word again, you know, is this kind of nostalgic, uh, hearkening back, uh, you know, to a kind of 1950s America um, uh, that, that I see. And, um, you know, the, the, I think the challenges uh, that, that we're seeing, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have thought, for example, that, you know, we'd see uh, people who look like they're out of, a, you know, white uh, guys who look like they're out of a Gap commercial, um, you know, chanting, Jews will not replace us, and circling and, and defending Confederate statues and, and, and Charlottesville, you know, and open with their tiki torches and, mm-hmm. um, and such. So I, I think, you know, it, it's uh, quite stunning, I think, how open uh, uh, it is today. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, the second book I've written, actually, with the word white supremacy in the title, mm-hmm. um, trying to kind of take this on um, directly. Yep. Um, before I move to the question about how we're having the conversation or not, in this country about white supremacy. Um, Why do you think that uh, it's being, I want to phrase this the right way, I was going to say aloud, why why do you think that we are in fact witnessing these white supremacist acts and behavior um, in the open? What's what's happening in the culture that's allowing folk to be so brazen about it in this moment? Yeah. Well, I think there's a kind of desperation um, as, again, as the country is changing. I'll just give you some some numbers, you know, and I'd say that white supremacy, I should also be clear, has always really been wrapped up, not just as an ethnic identity, but in this country, at least, its history has always been a kind of ethno-religious identity. So the KKK, for example, wasn't just defending white supremacy per se. Mm -hmm. They were defending a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christian version mm-hmm. um, of America. So it's that ethno-religious identity that's, that's being defended here. And so, you know, one thing that I think is, is causing this now um, is that it's really just been the last 20 years that for the first time in our history, uh, we have ceased to be, demographically speaking, a majority white Christian country. So if you go back just 20 years ago, the country was 
uh, majority white and Christian. So if you take all uh, uh, white, non-Hispanic uh, people who are Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, but Christian, uh, 54% um, just 20 years ago, uh, and today that number's 42%. Uh, so that's a sea change that we've been through just in the last 20 years. And I, I think that even people don't know those statistics, I think for many white Christian people, um, and I should say for your listeners, um, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, the white evangelical denomination in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the world out of which I come, uh, and, and my, my family and my people, uh, that's who I'm talking about here. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, I think it is a kind of desperation of realizing that, uh, no longer, uh, is that demographic majority, uh, uh, there. And as, as that power base is slipping, we're seeing this kind of reactionary movement. And I should also just say very clearly that I, I think that the fact that that demographic change happened at the same time that we had our first African-American president, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in Barack Obama, um, also, I think we had the symbolic, uh, you know, presence of the change in, uh, in, in President Obama, uh, along with this demographic shift happening all at the same time. Uh, and I, I think that has led to this kind of reactionary, uh, even violent uh, response. Uh, when we come forward, uh, I mean, again, we're just getting started. It's going to be a rich hour talking about this new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. And to my mind, whether or not the latter uh, shared American future is even possible. A couple of things uh, are on my mind when we come forward. One, um, what about those who give this open, out in the open uh, white supremacy cover? People like uh, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, uh, people like Donald Trump, people like Vivek Ramaswamy, who recently compared uh, an African-American congresswoman, Ayanna Presley, to the Klan, um, trying to flip the script, as it were. What about those who give them cover, these white supremacists, and, and their uh, bad behavior, uh, number one? And number two, the question I posed moments ago that we'll get to when we come forward, um, uh, Robert P. Jones's take on how, in this moment, we are having or not a candid conversation in America about the white supremacy that we all see on display out in the open. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. It does indeed continue, and frankly, we're just getting started in this hour with our guest, Robert P. Jones, talking about uh, his new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Once again, we'll interrogate that latter part, uh, the possibility of a shared American future in a multiracial democracy. We'll interrogate that later in this hour. Robert P. Jones is president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, and I am honored to have him on this program. Um, I said I wanted to start with this, and I will, and that is um, this white supremacy that is now out in the open in contemporary America uh, is being given the kind of political cover that we've not seen in a long time historically in this country when you have senators uh, like Tommy Tuberville of Alabama uh, making excuses for white supremacists, uh, when you have Donald Trump uh, egging them on uh, in Charlottesville or in the nation's capital on January the 6th, when you have Vivek Ramaswamy comparing an African-American congresswoman and a Presley uh, to behaving like the Klan, you're you're getting political cover um, for this uh, white supremacist behavior out in the open and I don't know how to read that, Robert P. Jones. 
Well, you know, I, I think we read it fairly straightforwardly if we're if we're honest about it. And I, I think that's been one of the biggest disasters, um, you know, of the Trump era, uh, and particularly with the, the Make America Great Again, that MAGA movement has been its, you know, not only kind of wink and nod, but overt, uh, you know, statements like uh, from, from uh, former President Trump of, you know, telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, saying there were fine people on both sides. Um, his attack on the 1619 project, uh, for example, like all of these things are not even veiled, um, you know, uh, support for white supremacy and pushing back on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, other movements for equality. It, it's pretty straightforward. Like I said, I, I think it's out in the open and it does make a difference when you have leaders from the top down signaling um, that this is no longer taboo, that this is somehow okay, and in fact is encouraged uh, from, from the top down. I, I do think it's a failure of leadership uh, in many, uh, particularly among many Republican uh, candidates and, and leaders uh, that has is, that is opened up, you know, reopened this box and, and made it okay, right, to come out and, and uh, be out in the open. Since you raised Barack Obama's name earlier, um, and many others have opined on this, I've never had a chance to ask you this question, but again, I'm following you since you went there. What do you make in retrospect now of the way Barack Obama handled or not handled, as it were, the white supremacist pushback he received? And a second question that's a bit more nuanced but connected, uh, and that is how he handled, dealt with the issue of race writ large. Yeah, well, it's certainly complicated. Uh, I am uh, exceedingly uh, sympathetic of the position, you know, he was in. For example, you know, I, I think none of us know uh, the number of threats uh, that were on his life on a daily or weekly basis uh, throughout his presidency. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if that ever comes to light, we will all be uh, stunned, uh, maybe not surprised, I think, but stunned by what that looks like. So I, I think, you know, the context in which he operated as the first African-American president, um, I think just completely, uh, you know, ch challenging there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I, I think him responding, you know, uh, in some ways with quips and saying, you know, look, you know, uh, if you, you don't think that, that I have experienced this, you know, try catching a cab uh, with me uh, sometime and you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see uh, uh, white supremacy at work uh, there. Um, so, you know, I, I actually am, quite uh, admiring and, and in some ways in awe of uh, the way he held his head up against what I think I know, you know, was the onslaught uh, that he received just on a, on a daily basis on this front. Mm -hmm. Let me now have, um, let's have a conversation about the conversation before we get back to the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, a conversation about the conversation. Give me your critique of the way you see America in this present moment having or not having embracing or avoiding a national conversation about the white mm -hmm. supremacy that we all see playing out in front of our eyes. Yeah, I know. I think we're, we're absolutely at a moment of, um, you know, uh, and this is a cycle. This is not the first moment. We, we see this happening throughout American history, um, you know, but a moment of repression and denial um, that we're seeing. Again, I think it's, it's partially because of the changes in the country, um, I think it's because of some of the successes of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, again, the success of having our first African-American president, the sense that the country is changing and there is a backlash against that sense that things are really uh, changing. Uh, and I should say, too, that I, I think in, for many white Christian Americans, conservative Christian Americans, it was actually uh, Barack Obama's re-election 
that I think was the the sounding uh, the the bell sounding. It wasn't just a fluke, uh, but the country sort of not only elected but reelected uh, an African American president. That was the sign that things are really shifting here. And so I think what we're we're seeing is just this kind of reactionary movement, and we always see this. So we saw this after the Civil War with the uh, rapid work to dismantle uh, the, the first civil rights acts that we had, right, after the Civil War during Reconstruction. Uh, and w- the United Daughters of the Confederacy are doing many of the same things that are now being done in the name of so-called, you know, uh, critical race theory. So what did the United Daughters of the Confederacy do? Uh, they tried to control which textbooks uh, were being taught and what was being taught about slavery, the Confederacy, um, and and literally whitewashing, um, you know, that entire story, putting up those monuments that we're now just now getting around to taking many of them down after 100 years of, uh, of existence. So I think we've been through these kind of cyclical moments in American history when there's progress, when there's movement toward racial equality and acceptance, there is this kind of backlash uh, movement. And I think we're seeing it now. What's different, though, I think, is that uh, and what I think makes it a little more desperate is that people are realizing um, and, and Trump gave voice to this right on the on the campaign trail. He would say things like, look, if you don't vote for me, uh, you're not going to have a country anymore. And when he used that language, right, what he mean? who's who's the you who's the we're not going to have a country anymore. Um, it really is this sense of America as a white Christian country. And that's the America he thinks he's he's protecting and appealing to his uh, his followers to help him hold on to. That's what the whole nostalgia in the again and MAGA. Um, is is really about. We talk often on this program about making sure that in conversation and dialogue, we are in the right frame. We always want to get our frame right. I want to talk for a moment now about reframing, as it were, because your book, as as I read it, um, engages this conversation about the reframing of America's origins uh, and how the founders of the U.S. uh, could build the philosophical framework for a democratic society on a foundation of mass racial violence. That's what they did. And you talk, of course, more expressly about how and why this paradox survives today in the form, as you mentioned earlier, of white Christian nationalism. There are a couple questions that I want to interrogate uh, in that regard. Let me start with this. My grandmother, Big Mama, who who didn't have a high school degree, um, was wise. And she said to me on more than one occasion, baby, you can't start out wrong and end up right. You can't start out wrong and end up right. Uh, when it comes to America's origins, I ask you, uh, broadly speaking, how a nation will get to whether or not we can find a path or get on a path to a shared American future. But before we get to that, before we go forward, let me go backwards and ask uh, how a country that starts out wrong can ever end up right. Yeah, it's a, it's an open question. I think we have had this, these twin contradictory streams that have that have been here since before uh, uh, the the country was even formed, and that's kind of one of the things I highlight in the book. You know, is that on the one hand we have this strong, um, you know, we, today we're talking about it as Christian nationalism, but it, it has very very long you know threads all the way back to the 15th century, uh, and the version of Christianity that lands on the shores from Europe, mm-hmm. um, you know, has this under the you literally under the hood uh, this this idea that these lands were meant for European Christians. And so never mind the people who are here. Uh, uh, and it sets up that, that idea that if, um, you know, any lands are occupied by non-Christian people, that, that, uh, that European Christians have the right to invade, conquer, steal, 
uh, kidnap, enslave. Um, this is all explicitly blessed uh, by the church. So we have that one stream of European Christianity landing on the shores, and then we have this other philosophical stream um, that's about uh, the country being a pluralistic democracy. So I think in many ways we're still trying to answer this question. Are we uh, a country that was intended by God to be for uh, uh, the use of white Christian people, uh, people of European descent, or are we a pluralistic democracy? And these two things are mutually incompatible uh, here, and we're, we're still arguing over that. We've never fully resolved that question. It has been with us throughout our nation's history. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, there are a number of things in this book that you do that I'm grateful for, and chief among them is the, is the following. It seems simple enough, and yet people who are well-intentioned make this mistake all the time. And you set the record straight on this, and I'm, again, grateful uh, uh, for your doing so. Um, from your vantage point, and I think uh, the vantage point of anybody who really understands American history, the enslavement of Africans, my people, was not America's original sin. And so many people, including presidents and elected officials and scholars and others who, again, uh, are well-intentioned, always make that mistake. And every time I hear somebody say that, for me, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Slavery, as horrific as it was, the enslavement of Africans, was not America's original sin uh, I'll let you unpack what was. I'm sure the audience has already figured that out. Most, I think, know this. Again, even though we, we say it in a way that's just absolutely historically inaccurate, it's historically incorrect. Slavery was not America's original sin. And yet, I, I uh, as I yield to you to, to unpack what you write in the book about that, uh, let me start by asking, why do you think people continue to advance that narrative? Why do we say that all the time? It's just not true. No, that, that's exactly right. And I'll have to say here to um, just be honest that this was part of uh, kind of a growth area for me in writing the book is kind of widening the aperture to see beyond this kind of black-white binary. Um, and so I, I think that uh, it, it's in some ways it's um, it's very limiting, right, of our, of, our, of our vision, particularly I think from you know perspective of of white people. So I can think of like you know white Christian people think, okay, well uh, maybe we just got a we had a, we had a problem with slavery. That's what we need to deal with, and if we deal with that, then we're good, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I think when you see the bigger picture, you realize, oh, no, 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 no. The problem goes much, much yes, deeper than yes, that, yes, yes. right? And and so the same kind of forces that justified the transatlantic slave trade, enslavement of Africans, is the same forces that justified the genocide, force removal, and migration of Native Americans from all across uh, the country. And when you see that, and the way I put it in the book is that, you know, uh, white, even well-meaning, I think white people uh, would often talk about this as, what are we going to do about the quote-unquote Negro problem? Or what are we going to do about the quote-unquote Indian problem? Uh, but when you see this in a uh, in this bigger frame, what you realize is that upstream from all of that is actually a white Christian problem. Mm. That's worth interrogating, and we will. <clears throat> but what does it mean <clears throat> that in our discourse, we move right past what happened to the Native Americans and, again, define slavery as America's original sin. At the very, at the very least, it, it, does a yeah. disservice, it does a disservice to those Native Americans, does it not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, I think part of it is, I can take my example from Mississippi. So I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, and so, you know, the, the conflict and the fraught history between uh, people of European descent and people of African descent in Mississippi was very clear and in front of us. But because 
of acts of genocide and forced removal uh, in the 1830s of most of the Native American population from all across the Southeast, um, there were very few Native Americans that I interacted with growing up. So I think there's kind of a practical uh, aspect of, that's an easier to kind of think about. Um, so there is, you know, a kind of Cherokee uh, uh, nation in, in Mississippi in the north part of the state, but many of them were moved to Oklahoma, uh, right, um, uh, during this, this period at, at uh, uh, under, you know, gunpoint. Um, and, and so I, I think there's a kind of practical thing, but it, it absolutely ends up hiding, you know, this history of uh, this Native American history, uh, not only in the past, but uh, but it it hides the the question of justice. Like what 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 do we owe? Right? What what is what is owed? What what's required? Right? For us to deal with this history honestly uh, to both African Americans and to Native Americans. Yeah. Um, I'm not naive in asking this, but why do you think the Christian community has so steadfastly um, resisted um, addressing seriously addressing these questions? Well, I think the most straightforward answer, um, you know, is that we're complicit, um, mm. right? So it, it's it's a it's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, my own uh, kind of uh, personal story, um, you know, gets to this. Like, so I was a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. What does that word "southern" mean in Southern Baptist Convention? It's the largest Protestant denomination in the country still mm-hmm. today. And what's its origins? Its origins were. Uh, Northern and Southern Baptists broke uh, in 1845, and the Southern uh, indicates uh, that this was Baptists in the South who were defending uh, the compatibility of the gospel, uh, the Christian gospel, and enslavement of people on the basis of the color of their skin. Uh, so that's that's the story, right? And if you go back even further, um, they are the folks also justifying um, genocide and forced removal of, of Native Americans. And so that's a hard history to face, yeah. um, especially when you have spent centuries covering it up, building these impossible mythologies, um, right, of innocence um, around them, to sort of be honest about it. Yeah. Um, it it's a difficult turn. No, um, I think you're right about that, and um, hence the fact that people's heads are still buried in the sand. Um, Robert P. Jones mentioned he's from Mississippi, and uh, so is yours truly, so he ain't the only one uh, in this conversation from Mississippi. Uh, I was just there uh, a couple weeks ago for the uh, annual Emmett Till anniversary weekend in Mississippi. And he makes a fascinating connection, which you need to hear about in a moment, between Emmett Till and the Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto. We'll let uh, Robert P. Jones unpack that for you. You'll learn something about Emmett Till when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Robert P. Jones, that is, uh, president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute and uh, author of a new book called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Um, you mentioned Mississippi earlier, and uh, that is the state of my birth as well. I was just there a couple weekends ago for the annual Emmett Till anniversary weekend and what a time we had, <clears throat> excuse me, in Mississippi celebrating uh, the life and legacy um, of this young man, Emmett Till. And all these years later, the conversations that we still have in this country, uh, born of um, his tragic murder. Uh, and uh, again, I was there and just had a great time in Mississippi. Uh, but in your, in your book, you make an interesting connection between Emmett Till and, uh, and a Spanish conquistador, and I wonder if you might unpack that, sir, for the audience. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll try to. It's it's a long connection, but I, I think it's relevant. It's one of the things that I try to do in the book is to try to make uh, these connections again between the kind of first European contact treatment of Native Americans, uh, treatment of African Americans, and how this explains where we are today. So, you know, just one question I think we all continue to ask is like, how do we get a society right where a 14 year old who's uh, their visiting relatives uh, is brutally murdered, um, right? Uh, uh, for just one interaction with uh, with a uh, you know fairly innocent interaction with a white woman, mm-hmm. uh, how, how does that happen, right? And so when I trace it all the way back, right? So you you first say, well, why is he in Chicago in the first place, right? It's because his mother uh, and and her generation fled the South because of its. Uh, uh, history of lynching and violence. They were part of the great migration up, up to Chicago. Um, and so we've got that. And so how do we get that uh, situation? You kind of take it all the way back. And if you take it all the way back, you know, wh- where you end up with is it's 1541 when Hernando de Soto was the first European to reach the Mississippi River. Uh, it's, the, it's exactly 400 years before Till's birth uh, in 1541. Um, this is the claim of the land for Spain that it eventually becomes, you know, part of the U.S. claim. Um, but it is this claim, uh, you know, it's really an audacious claim, again, based on this idea that, that the U.S. are, that these lands were intended to be a kind of promised land for European mm-hmm. Christians. He, he claims it in the name of, of Spain and in the church, uh, and the Christian church, uh, there. And, and that sets, sets us up for, uh, again, acts of, you know, three centuries of acts of genocide. And ultimately, forced, remo- forced removal in the 1830s of the last remnants of, uh, of Native Americans uh, during uh, the Trail, Trail of Tears. Uh, there, that that you know that makes makes the way for uh, the clearing of the Delta by imported enslaved labor um, uh, in in the in the early 1800s. So all of these stories are absolutely connected and give us the kind of uh, culture and people um, who could think that an act like that, and, and these don't forget, I mean, these men were acquitted, right, uh, mm-hmm. within an hour by by a jury of all white men uh, there. And just one little detail that that I discovered shows you, you know, again, the kind of society we're talking about is that um, at the time, you know, um, and, and so they, you can't be selected for a jury unless you're registered to vote, mm-hmm. but that's the pool from which people are, are uh, pulled for jury duty. And so not only were there 12 white men on this jury, but uh, in the entire pool from which they were picked, there was not a single eligible African American because there was zero uh, in, in 1955, zero African Americans registered to vote in, in Tallahatchie County, which is about half African American. Yeah. Yeah. So the outcome was was predictable from the very beginning um, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which you just detailed that there were no black folk in the jury pool to begin with. Um, yeah. But, but back to back to DeSoto right quick. Um, and yeah. your and your um, your um, your framing of what he did in the name of the church. Indeed, he did. Uh, I wonder if I can jump from then until now, uh, given that you are a uh, leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture and politics. Hence this text. Um, give me give me your read in real time of um, the church state debate, the, the church state uh, conundrum, uh, if I can put it that way, in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're still seeing, uh, you know, state of Oklahoma, uh, for example, um, you know, is uh, uh, having uh, just approved uh, public tax money to support Catholic schools, mm-hmm. right, um, uh, in, in Oklahoma. So. And we're still having this bigger than that, though, just at kind of the schools. We're still having this bigger debate. And, you know, again, in 2023, some of the big fault lines of the country are 
what kind of a country are we? Mm-hmm. Are we a Christian country, right? Is that who we were intended to be? And this, uh, it, it's stunning that, you know, this, again, was kind of came out of 15th century church and political doctrines, um, you know, out of Europe. And yet when we poll on it, even today, like we've asked questions uh, in, a, in a poll just last this, this year, earlier this year, uh, we asked Americans, um, you know, do you agree or disagree that the U.S., uh, you know, was intended by God to be a kind of promised land for European Christians? Uh, and we have three in ten Americans agreeing with that, which, you know, means it doesn't mean that two-thirds of the country rejects that view. But when you look at the partisan and religious divides here, uh, a majority of white evangelical Protestants agree with that statement, and a majority of the Republican Party agrees with that statement, mm-hmm. right? That Again, that, that America was intended by God to be a promised land for European Christians. So we've got, like, that, again, that ethno-religious claim that this is the this is who the country was intended to be for mm-hmm. and for the benefit of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that view is still very much with us uh, today, you know, some 500 years later. This question might sound strange given what you just uh, uh, shared with us. Let me ask it anyway, because I want to give you a chance to go right at it. Um, that question, are we a Christian country? Um, does that question matter in 2023? And if it does matter, tell me why it matters. Well, you know, I think a lot of times people will, uh, in, in everyday conversation, uh, will throw that around, mm-hmm. um, right? And you could mean different things by that. You could, you could mean, well, is, has it been historically a majority Christian country? But I think when it gets weaponized in politics, it actually means something quite specific. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it is usually an ethno-religious claim. Uh, when people say it's a Christian country, what they really mean, and if you kind of pay attention to who uses that mostly, um, they really mean they're making a kind of European Christian claim. Um, on the country, it's a white Christian country is really what they're um, what they're claiming uh, there, and that again is still very much with us today. It explains a lot of the fault lines between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party uh, today. Very few Democrats agree with that statement in, in recent polling, but again, a majority of Republicans are staking this claim. And why it really matters is that that's a fundamentally anti-democratic view, mm-hmm. uh, right? That's that's death uh, to a, a pluralistic. Uh, democracy to make the claim that one religious group, one ethnic group, has a privileged place um, over everyone else. It's a it's kind of outdated and archaic, but and very hierarchical, uh, you know, view of, of the country. It, it, it's nowhere near a kind of view where everyone stands on equal footing as citizens uh, before the law, no matter what their race or religion. Yeah. Um, I, I asked uh, of our guest Robert P. Jones earlier in this conversation. Uh, um, a question about uh, my grandmother, Big Mama's edict, that you can't start out wrong and end up right. Uh, when we come forward, uh, we'll talk directly about the potential for change, potential for change in this country, and whether or not, as the subtitle of his book uh, interrogates, there is a path to a shared American future, and I would add to that, a shared American future in a multiracial democracy. Our guest is Robert P. Jones. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Our guest is Robert P. Jones, president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute uh, and uh, author of a new book called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Let me ask a, 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 a big question first, Robert, and then we'll 
we'll jump into whether or not there is a path that we can get on um, to a shared American future in a multiracial democracy. And that, I, I add that for obvious reasons. You, you take my point. We'll get to that in just a second here. Um, but, but what do you see uh, as the potential for change in the United States? Um, well, I, I so appreciate the, the comment you made about your, your mother um, earlier in this, you know, about can't start off wrong and end up right. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's exactly correct. Um, you know, it reminds me of a recent statement that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris made um, at, actually at the signing uh, of this new legislation uh, uh, dedicating uh, a new national monument uh, to Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley yeah. um, uh, that's, that's going to be coming online uh, very soon. Um, and, you know, she said, you know, let us not be seduced into thinking that we'll be better if we forget. Mm-hmm. Um, that that will be better if we remember, and we'll be stronger um, if if we remember. And you know, I, I think we all know that in our personal lives, you know, that, that it's it's very hard to live lives of integrity or honesty, particularly in a relationship with other people, if the foundation of that relationship is built on a lie. Um, you know, and and I, I've long uh, uh, again, you know, someone who grew up uh, sort of thinking of themselves as white and Christian, um, and when I encountered James Baldwin's you know writings, and he talked about um, his understanding that that he and many other African Americans had sometimes of white people, and what he said was being the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing, mm-hmm. is how he so eloquently put it, mm-hmm. and that has really stayed with me, you know. And I think that's exactly right. That you know, it, it's not only true that that we can't be in right relationship uh, with, with each other across lines of race, across lines of religion, without telling the truth. Uh, but it's also, I think, important for, again, people who look like me um, and come from my background to realize that, like, we can't even live lives of integrity ourselves mm. um, if, if we don't tell the truth um, about our own past and, and our, you know, our predecessor's place yeah. uh, and our faith's place, um, you know, in, in uh, things, you know, as awful as violence and oppression. Uh, so I think we've all got something at stake uh, in telling a truer story and that that is, in fact, the only way to find the beginning of a path that we might take together. Um, We talked earlier in this conversation uh, about the fact that um, um, slavery, um, the enslavement of uh, Africans, was not America's original sin. We know uh, the original sin is what we did to the Native Americans who Columbus bumped into once he discovered America. Uh, Yeah, He discovered it uh, as he bumped into somebody else who was already here. I digress on that point. Um, but I recall I recall years ago um, being with Bill Clinton when he was president uh, on a trip to Africa. We went to I went with him to like six nations, as I recall. It was a six nation trip. I'm with the president traveling with him. I'm a journalist, but I'm traveling with him as part of the media delegation. And uh, for all the persons in that delegation, he chose to sit with me and give me an exclusive interview uh, from the continent while we were mm. traveling together. We sat for a conversation just before his meeting with Nelson Mandela. Uh, we sat for a conversation. He, Hillary, and and I, three of us actually, sat for a conversation uh, in South Africa. And I, I was, I was curious in that conversation as to whether or not, while we were traveling through Africa, he would take the occasion to apologize for slavery. Mm-hmm. I asked him that question as Bill Clinton did. He tiptoed around it rather nicely. Uh, And as it turns out, during that trip to Africa, that Six Nation uh, tour, he did not, in fact, apologize for slavery. When we come forward 
in our remaining moments with Robert P. Jones uh, before we get to whether or not there is a path to a shared American future. Uh, we are in a conversation right now, of course, in this state of California where this uh, radio show emanates from uh, live every day across the nation. In California, everybody's watching to see what we do on the issue of reparations. So we're in a reparations frame right now. We're having that dialogue. But I wonder how things might be different right now had somebody apologized long ago for slavery, had somebody apologized long ago for the genocide that we uh, uh, that was visited upon the Native Americans. How might we be in a different space right now? Had that apology come long ago. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right Got about now. four minutes left, Robert Jones, in this conversation. Let me uh, try to cover two more things in the few minutes that we have left here. Um, the question I, I posed a moment ago, whether or not we might be, might be in a different place uh, in this uh, uh, nation called America had somebody sincerely apologized for slavery uh, the enslavement of Africans and the genocide of Native Americans. Somebody apologized for that sincerely a long time ago. Might we be in a different place right now? I, I love that question. You know, I think one of the reasons why we're dealing with this in 2023 and in our generation is exactly that, that there really never has been this full-throated reckoning uh, with with this history, Not again, not only toward African, uh, kind of white treatment of, of African-Americans and Native Americans and justified by Christian theology. Uh, and it's kind of one thing that I'm calling for here. And yeah, if we if this would happen in my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, I think we'd be in a very different place. But if you think about, you know, the arc here, I'm going to kind of invoke a Christian category of confession. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that begins with truth-telling, right? And you can't get to the parts that are about repair, healing, reconciliation. You can't get to those parts until there's been a full-throated confession. And I think that's the part we've always tried to jump over. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, I think, as, as white Christian people, we tend to kind of jump over that. We want to put our arms around each other and sing Kumbaya and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we forget the truth-telling confession part that is the only foundation from which, you know, we, mm-hmm. we could move forward. And, and so I think it's fallen to, you know, our generation because previous generations have really been un- unwilling to do it. Um, but I will say just real quickly that I, I am a little hopeful that I have been in more than a hundred predominantly white Christian churches in the past few years, uh, talking about, explicitly talking about white supremacy. Like, so with the word white supremacy in the title of the talk, published in the program, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that those conversations are beginning to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the conversations are beginning to happen, uh, which I think is good news, but leads to the obvious and exit question for that matter, uh, whether or not mm-hmm. there is a path to a shared American future, is that possible in a multiracial democracy? Well, America has always been the great experiment, right, with that question being an open one, uh, and it's going to depend on whether we're willing to live into it. Um, I I think it really is, we're at a hinge point in American history. I don't say that lightly. I I genuinely believe that, where this question is finally coming to the fore in a way that we're going to have to deal with, because we are, in fact, a multiracial, multireligious nation whether we'll be able to hold together uh, under the uh, uh, framework of democracy is one that's up to, is up to us. Yeah. It's an open question. Uh, would you care to, uh, to uh, put a wager on it? You know, I, I, I hope so. Um, I think if we can make it through the next decade, um, you know, I think and with 
democracy intact, I think we'll get there. Um, but I do think there is uh, strong, strong, very critical, important work to do. We can't uh, sit by and, you know, just kind of wait for it to happen. We're really going to have to step up and uh, do this work of confession and do the work of protecting democracy over the next year. Robert P. Jones uh, is uh, the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. His new book is called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robert P. Jones, thanks for the text and thank you for this conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. I appreciate you, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. My great delight to have had you on.